Hello, welcome to the Car Stories Podcast, brought to you by the Peterson Automotive Museum. My name is Kyle Hyatt, and not with me once again, because he is terminally unreliable. Uh, I blame imperialism. Uh, James McKeon, he, I think he's in Chicago now or something. I can't. Who can say? Who knows where that guy is? It's like, uh, uh, was it uh, Carmen Sandiego, but like less, way less uh, taste in hats, I guess is how, you, how you'd want to put it. Anyway. We're here. It's it's a Wednesday, which is weird for me, but uh, I'm psyched because I'm here with Sam Smith, who uh, happens to be my favorite automotive writer right now. Oh, Christ, now I'm on the spot. Yeah. That's awfully nice of you to say. Thank you. You shut it, Smith. Oh! Um, <laughs> no, but really, you're fantastic. Like, I always read your stuff, and it's, it's I'm really psyched to have you here. Um, if you guys have heard of Sam Smith, it's probably because you read, you know, stuff. Or you're my mother. Yeah, same. Yeah, we get a lot of basically same person. This is a very, uh, this is a very mom-centric podcast. We get a lot of <laughs> we skew really high with the mom demographic, um, in particular mine and James. You know, mm, I'd say that makes sense. It makes yeah. sense, especially with him. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, Sam currently editor at large for Road and Track, which is you know it's pretty cool to share a job title with Peter Egan. Um, you were you were Jalopnik. You've written for Wired. You you've been everywhere doing everything. Yeah, yeah. It um it's it's been weird. I, I still yeah. can't believe I get to do this for a living, but that's that's what everybody says, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean and in, <laughs> in particular you. You you tend to do more rad stuff than I think your average work a day journalist, and you're still a pretty young guy too, so uh, I feel I feel old every day, older and older every day. I'm thirty six, six. Oh well, you're close to death then. That's <laughs> you got four yeah, years just, on just me. minutes away, absolute yeah. minutes away. Well, I mean, you keep driving uh, all the the old NASCARs and uh, crazy stuff. You, I, you might be. I, I have say? a de- I have a death wish, but it's it's a very calm, you know, crotchety death wish. Well, that's the best kind. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, jumping all the way back to the beginning, how how'd you get started? You know, getting interested in cars. I mean, what what oh, jumped out at you? God, you know, I everybody has that story, right? And everybody has some. Oh, and I was sitting in a stroller when I was two years old. I used to be able to pick out the Honda Accords from the Honda Civics, and you know, tell all my. Everybody has some version of that, and mine is not much different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up when I was little. When I was, well, I guess my dad went through a series of random things like everybody else: T Series MGs and Alphas and BMWs. And then when I was about, oh, I guess, 10, 11, somewhere in middle school. He had a uh, had a marketing job at Chevron that you know was just kind of a, a mid level manager gig that mm-hmm. made him move all around the country. We moved something like oh Christ, I think we lived in a state a year for you know five or six years. That's uh, that's pretty ridiculous. It was, it was, and uh, but at one point he basically just decided he didn't want to go anywhere anymore. And he and my mom set down roots in the town they were in, which happened to be the town in which they grew up. And he opened a restoration shop for a bit. Oh, wow. Okay. And ran that for about uh, 10 years or so in one form or fashion. What and, was his uh, specialty? Uh, British stuff. British stuff, German stuff. Started off being, oddly enough, T-Series MGs and pre-war overhead cam cars. You know, the okay. really old and crotchety stuff that's insanely complex and has a watch work at the top. And in the end, it makes 60 horsepower. Sure. But so, it's very rewarding work. Is what yeah. You're, yeah. But it, because there are only so many of those in the world, it evolved into doing a lot of other stuff. That's that how happens. that works. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's our collections manager, Dana, has kind of a similar deal. He, he started uh, doing um, specifically C2 Corvettes and then <laughs> and that's it. That's all he did. And then and then he, as is after he decided like his shop was originally. Uh, I believe they they built like museum exhibits, yeah. and he's like, yeah, well, I don't know. Let me. I'm I'm the most interesting human alive. Let me just start restoring C2 Corvettes, which <laughs> then transitioned into into British stuff. Uh, I don't, the man's an enigma. We've we've had him on. I, I had to bribe him with um, uh, a piece of currency from Malawi. In Malawi. Africa. I don't even know where Malawi is. It's, but it's in Africa. I think it's in the middle. Better of, question: How did you end up with currency from Malawi? eBay, actually. But the and funny thing about did. it is, is that Dana's a Land Rover enthusiast, and uh, the fifty Quacha note. <laughs> is the only piece of currency with a Land Rover on it. It's a beautiful engraving. Seriously? Yeah. But what type of Land Rover? Uh, it's a Series 110. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Excellent choice. Takes up a lot of real estate, too. Sure it does. Well, he he daily drives um, uh, uh, the, the shorter one. Oh, cool. Uh, not the 90, but the Series. It's a Series 2A, I think. Okay. Cool. I'm not so up on Land Rover. Obviously. You know. And, or Malawi currency, frankly. I'm just I'm pretty up on dis- Malawi currency, actually. Pretty disappointed. No, I don't think so. Well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so your your dad had this restoration business. He's yeah. toiling away. Oh, toiling is, is no Smith man has ever toiled. We don't toil. We we, we work in uh, deep frustration and hair loss. Excellent. But um he, he did that for 
yeah, he did that right up until I guess I went to college and I kind of got into drove somehow got into old BMWs. Um, 2002s and E30s had you know mm-hmm. something like 15 or 20 E30s. It just uh, the whole sickness. But so you're the reason the prices have gone up significantly. I you am just broke not. Off. You broke 15 I am or 20. not. I'm the guy in the corner crying because he used to buy those cars for $500 and no one wanted them. Or yeah. e, like E30M3s, right? There was a point when oh. when nobody wanted them because they were the four cylinder slow, you know, mm-hmm. weird looking thing that had a body kit on it and, and cost a fortune to keep right, on the road because right. S14 means big boy money. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, you know, he, where was I? What were you we talking about? Oh, um, went to college and ended up kind of falling into BMW Club track days through that. And okay. the BMW Club, mainly because it was, you know, I remember I had an empty weekend when we lived in St. Louis. I lived in St. Louis because I went to school there and had an empty weekend. It was just, uh, this was 2001 or 2002, cruising through whatever passed for the internet then, you know, stone tablets and, <laughs> you know, acid etchings. And uh, there was a, a track day out at Gateway International, which is like a, a weird little. They used to run IndyCar there. Still, actually, we just went back to oh, running wow. IndyCar okay. there. But tiny little oval that's narrow, really narrow at one end and wide on the other. Huh. And there's a dinky little road course in the middle of it. And I had a, a 76 2002 that had 165 section tires on it and giant honking Weber side drafts <laughs> and a giant honking, way too lumpy cam. And it went on and drove the thing and, and basically, you know, the spent. Christ, spent probably two straight days listening to the sound of very tiny tires, get very unhappy. And yeah. was hooked. <laughs> I and couldn't, couldn't get away from it. But now, is this the car is this the car that you're you're currently restoring for your dad? No, no, that was God, there are so many two thousand twos in my long and varied <laughs> yeah. and boring myth. But um that was that was a buddy of mine's daily driver in high school. And the long short version of that is we got into in college I was holding down a couple of jobs and trying to make, um, you know, trying to pay for everything that you need to pay for in college and, and ended up somehow scrounging enough and up enough money to go run an SCCA IT car, which is basically wow. like, you know, IT is stands for improved touring. It was a class where old showroom stock cars basically went to die. Mm-hmm. So you got to run, you could do whatever you want with the suspension. You could do whatever you want with the brakes, but you had to run a stock motor and a stock drive line, basically. Okay. It was like building a spec Miata motor where you go through all this work and spend thousands of dollars. And in the end, your 100-horse motor that came out of the factory stock is now a 120-horse motor. Yeah. But, you know. but anyway. Pray so to God they don't open that thing up. <laughs> it's so cheaty. It was, it, IT, IT makes for the most boring race cars in the world, but really interesting racing. But anyway, so we did this for did that for a couple of years until I completely ran out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, the story I always tell is that I knew I needed to quit because I was sitting on the grid at I think it was Groton in Michigan. It's a little okay. regional club track in Michigan that's like um, it's a couple miles long, something but hills and off-camber curves and just really, really weird, awesome stuff. But I was sitting on the on the grid there and wondering the that race I had sold. I ended up selling my furniture to buy tires. I was so desperate and out of money. I think you, if you're coming here to the Peterson <laughs> Museum, and I think you found kindred spirits because. <laughs> I think we're, we're we're enablers. Well, because because everybody runs, everybody who goes racing runs out of money at some point, right? Yeah. And the, the Otherwise, old everybody would do it, right? And the old joke is that I think there's you know the average the average tenure of an SCCA club racing license is something like three years because that's exactly how long it takes the average <laughs> middle class dude to run completely the hell out of money. Um, but anyway, so that's that's what we did and that's what I did, and then it got to a point where I realized that the only thing that was standing between me and an, another weekend in our very slow race car was a set of tires and I looked around my apartment and I, at the time I had two couches because I was in college and that's what you do. Sure. One of them was a hand-me-down for my mom and dad and was kind of nice and the other one was this cheap, I don't know, $300 thing, $250 thing I found on Craigslist. And I looked at it and thought, well, all right, you know, if I get rid of the nice couch, that's like, that's a set of Hoosiers. And then I sold the nice couch and ended up with a brand new spanky, sticky set of Hoosiers and threw mm-hmm. on the race car and then a week and a half later because that's how racing works the tires were useless and sure. i had only one couch but but you can turn that the tires into a nice coffee table <laughs> i think to that worked that worked until i got married what but, funny funny how that worked yeah yeah but so the, the 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 other half of that story is that about oh a month and a half two months later i was in the same predicament and had no tires and no money and had a couch and ended up selling my second couch and because that was not as nice a couch as the first couch it ended up bringing you know it wasn't enough money for a set of Hoosiers, but it was enough money for a set of Toyos that, you know, everybody ran. And only this set of Toyos had like two heat cycles on them because they were half used. And mm-hmm. I remember sitting on the grid 
idly waiting for the race to start, wondering what I needed to sell next. What parts, like going through, literally just going through the furniture in my house, thinking, well, you know, can I get rid of the dishwasher? No, need that for the dishes. Okay, the washing machine. Now that belongs to the roommate. I could sell the fridge, just run off a cooler, like get a cooler full of ice and just keep it in the house. You know, just that'd be easy. It'd be perfect. I mean, who needs, you know, water anyway? And realized (laughs) about halfway through that whole train of thought that that was the dumbest thing in the world. And that... That's how people end up, you know, junkies in a gutter with a, a, a figurative needle sticking out of their arm. And I don't know. It, it seemed like a, a really good time to stop. That's good. For I'm a like, bit, but... You call that hitting bottom, I think. Oh, no, no. That would mean admitting <laughs> I had a problem. Well, there you go. That's true. Uh, so how did you get into journalism? I mean, I'm sure that's the question every time you interview <laughs> somebody or, or you are interviewed by somebody rather. Everybody wants to know, how do, you, how do you get to drive cool cars for a living? How did that happen for you? I ended up here in a weird, back-ass way. But, well, everybody does. Well, I mean, but the question is, <laughs> how, is it how I got into it or how people should go about trying to get into it? Oh, well, you can't tell anybody how they should get to go because it's different every time. Like, you can't, like, do, nobody could recreate anybody else's <laughs> career path. <laughs> okay, good point. Yeah. Like, how did I get from being a high school student in, in Washington, in, like, semi-rural Washington State to hosting a podcast for a museum? A lot of accidents. A lot, a lot of... Uh, by the, okay, by yeah. the same token, it's you're right. It's not like... I guess I was thinking it's like being a doctor or a lawyer when it really isn't. You know, you go to school and then pray. Yeah. Um, but uh, God, for me, I got... Went to school and had no idea what I wanted to do with myself. Just absolutely nothing. And knew I was good at a handful of things. And knew I was okay at a handful of things. Even smaller list of things. And got got about halfway through it and then realized that I, you know, I was probably going to be writing something one way or the other for the rest of my life, whether or not anybody paid me Mm -hmm. and should probably try and get paid for it. And graduated with a degree in liberal arts and journalism, which is the two, like if if, somewhere out there, there's a pyramid of useless pieces of paper you can get. And at the peak is the intersection of what happens when you read a lot of books and then when you read a lot of newspapers. And that's the degree I ended up with, which means it's, I have, I have absolutely nothing, no useful skills in the real world. I like that. Yeah. That's nice. I mean, you could have gone with like a comparative history of literature, (laughs) you know? Then you could go teach, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah. But anyway, so got out and had nothing, nowhere, no, no plans, nothing. Didn't didn't know anybody, and I had been working as a mechanic all through college for a, an alpha shop that was oddly enough about a block off a of campus in St. Louis where I went to school, and got out and didn't have anything to do, so I went back to work for him. And then when I got tired of St. Louis and wanted to leave town, I moved to Chicago and ended up working for a friend of mine who ran a BMW Porsche shop there, and. Just kind of uh, getting very dirty every day because I I am the world's slowest mechanic. I don't screw things up. My cars never came back. Sure. But I'm the guy who, like, if if the book rate says it's going to take you about two hours to do that water pump, I'm going to spend the whole afternoon. Oh, sure. I might get some coffee. Like thorough. Yeah, well, sure. Or, you know, I, I... Some people make <laughs> mistakes and then spend the time going backward to to fix them. I just... I don't like making mistakes, so I, I, I'm just, I'm so slow, Kyle. It got to be painful. Like, I got to the point where it was, it was driving me nuts, but. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, it's, I mean, it's methodical. That's nice, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta sell it. You know, I mean, Grand, you're probably, you're probably beyond the, hopefully beyond the wrenching years professionally, but you gotta sell it. It's, it's like the thing where, you know, people who are baristas or bartenders, you know, mm-hmm. at the end, I know if, if the world goes to total pot, I can go turn wrenches for somebody very badly and mm-hmm. get paid. Less than the guys who are good at it. There you go. But at least, you know, put food on the table. Sure, so. sure. Well, and there's obviously, you know, if you read enough, there's certainly uh, honor in that kind of... Uh, <laughs> on a certain level, yeah, there being, is. Being terrible at, at, at something. Object- and, and yeah. Well, it's also a trade. It's doing something with your hands and being, you know, versatile and useful in society as opposed to being a journalist, which is mostly just, you know, uh, uh, taking away from the greater whole. I mean, yeah. You don't yeah. contribute. Ultimately, but. fleecing people out of their money for the benefit <laughs> of multinational corporations. But it's it's a it's great work if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what was your what was your first journalism job then? So you were working for a BMW I, Porsche shop in Chicago. And yeah. Then... I, I fell in with a bunch of guys in the BMW club in Chicago who was that was and is a, just an amazing group of people. You know, one of those one of those weird little pockets where you have a bunch of people who are in it for the right reasons, and they happen to do a lot of track days. I feel and like they, there's a Bill Caswell story coming up somewhere. Oh God, I, that's actually <laughs> how I met Bill Caswell, which is another. That's that's at least three hours of story. No one yeah. needs to hear about Bill Caswell right now. <laughs> but um, he's an old friend, really great guy. But man, everybody, everybody, everybody has a Bill story. Well, that's probably for the best. Uh, yeah, I think so. He's uh, kind of a nut, but he's he's an interesting dude. <laughs> 
When have, have you guys had him on? Not yet. Oh, I, I don't know if we have you know. that much tape. He's he's a he's a, a tornado, right? Mm-hmm. You get him in the room and the lights flicker. Oh, he's, yeah. he's a he's a great guy, but God, he takes a lot of energy. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I moved to Chicago and kind of fell in with those guys and started doing track days and and mainly just you know because the, the best part was at the time E30s were cheap and 2002s were cheap and. So I, you know, I drove one every day and then that was my autocross car and that was my track car. And that was the thing I used to drive six hours home to see my parents. Mm-hmm. And, um, but fell in with those guys and started doing work for the local newsletter and um, through a handful of different people. I somehow got to meet Satch Carlson, mm-hmm. who was running, still runs their magazine, okay. late, formerly of Auto Week and had a, he was, wrote for a bunch of buff books about 30 years ago. Really great guy. Uh, but he was nice enough to introduce me after about two or three years of begging was nice enough to introduce me to Jean Jennings, who ran Automobile. And I, I basically sat down with her over coffee and told her, after I'd emailed her about 300 times, begging for work, you know, anything. Sure. Like sweeping the floors, going up on the roof and chasing squirrels. I mean, anything. Um, and she basically sat down and said that I had, you know, there was no reason for me to be in this business. I, no one with a brain goes into this business. There was, you know, it's, you don't want to do this. I promise you, it's a great job, but it's amazing, but you don't want to do it. And I looked at her and I'm like, please, I'll do anything. And that uh, a couple of years later, or a year later, I guess, I ended up getting a, an assistant job there. Wow. Just and moved to Ann Arbor, which is where they were at the time. They're now in L.A., uh, but moved there mainly just to do anything, fact checking and editing, and kind of ground my way up from there. Nice. So. Yeah, it's it is interesting. It's it's one of those jobs where on the surface it sounds great, super satisfying. You do all kinds of good stuff. You know, like being a baker. You know, there's something to be said. You're working for, we're working with your hands. There's the smell of, of fresh, uh, fresh baked bread. You know, it's, just, yeah. but you know, you're condemning yourself to a life of abject poverty and, you know, better hope that you have a significant other that has a real job. I literally, right before I left, I left college, my counselor, I sat down with her and she's like, so what do you want to do again? And I told her, she goes, that's a, and there was just a pause and she was like, why do you want to do that? <laughs> and I told her and she said, okay, is there anything else you feel like you can do? And I go, um, like useful skills. And she goes, yeah. Do you have anything else? Anything else that you're passionate about? Anything you want to go chase that possibly fits in with your degree? And I kind of thought for a bit and didn't really have anything because I'm basically a useless person. Sure. And, uh, she paused for a second. She said, all right, you really want to do this? I said, yeah. She goes, there's nothing else in the world that you possibly feel like you could do. I said, yeah. She goes, nothing is going to convince you to not do this. I said, yeah. She goes, all right, then I'll help you. She just let out a deep sigh and turns around <laughs> and starts pulling, you know, her roll. At the time, she had a Rolodex. At the time, this person had a Rolodex because Rolodexes were a thing then. Sure. Um, because this was, God, when was this? 2001, 2002? But anyway, so um, she, she basically sat me down and said, look, you're going to spend your entire life not having any money. You'll have a lot of interesting experiences. The, the Your career in the industry may not be a thing by the time you retire, but I mean, it'll be fun and fine and uh, sure. And I went, sounds neat. Great. Do I get to play with cars and write about things? Please. That's, yeah. You know. Well, that's, that's as long as you got the right attitude. I mean, sure. <laughs> um, do you remember what the first vehicle you, you got to do a review for was? Low. Oh, so God. many years ago. Oh, wow. Um but it was something really given the, the time frame i bet it was something just a modern classic something really good oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah no i started at automobile in 06 but i wrote a i, I wrote a review of a i asked the e93 series for rondell but that doesn't really count because that wasn't i wasn't doing it full time then kind of preaching to the choir there right, right? Yeah. i mean yeah it's i mean you could say that you know the car looks like a moose and and Makes you bleed every time you drive it, and BMW people, I'm one of them, would still yeah. be BMW people. But take, take my money now. Yeah, exactly. And then take my money $3,000 at a time every time I bring it in to, to get fixed, please, forever, for the foreseeable future. What's that? A water pump every 60,000 miles? Yeah. Yes, that sounds totally normal. Is my radiator going to explode as a matter of course every three years? Why not? I'll tell you, I, I had BMWs for a long time, too, and... BMW reliability finally pushed me into, I was sick of it, finally pushed me into vintage Mercedes ownership. So just, just saying. Cocaine was not enough, so I went for the heroin. That's it was right. bad, you know. That's right. But it's what's funny, right? Because the, the line is always that the cars are reliable if. You know, it's like a Mercedes will run badly longer than anything else will run at all. Sure. And BMWs are some, they're not quite that far down on the spectrum. So we always used to tell customers, it's like, you know, if you're going, if you do this, if you do X and Y and Z, this car will give you half a million miles, million mm-hmm. miles on it. You know, if it's an E30 or an E28 or something. Sure. 
Um, but it was, you'd always get people who would, you know, would ask questions like, why does my E36 need a radiator every 60,000 miles and a water pump and yada, yada, yada. Because it's German and it's sure. better. Yeah, of course. Uh, Don't you want to do 150 miles oh, an I'm hour? Oh, I'm sorry. Can I show you to the Hyundai dealership? Shout out to Hyundai. <laughs> Yeah. yeah so all right um but oh you asked questions sure. first car i think it was a an 06 audi a6 and it was like probably the smallest motor on offer with vinyl seats and crank windows and you know a roof made of of uh, horse hide and and it was it was probably an absolute stripper because i was nobody at the magazine and i'm even more more nobody now but the point was i was nobody and hadn't been in the business for long mm. and it was i remember just driving around in it thinking how am i driving someone else's car just Feels looking around the room for yeah you know it was it was a weird sensation it is super odd it's very strange i just got honda just gave me a motorcycle for two weeks oh cool what'd yeah. you get a CB 500F. So we're not we're not lighting the streets of Los Angeles on fire. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not a twelve o'clock boy yet. But uh, but again, it still feels super weird that somebody's like, here, take this, like you know, all. I mean, granted, it's like six grand, but still, take the keys still. to this thing that you're probably going to like lay over, and then we might not see it. Take it, take it. It's it's a representation yeah. of trust, right? And yeah. that's it's not yours. It's a I mean, it's a neat experience. And Doesn't if you deign to write about twelve hundred words about it, we'd really appreciate that. Like it's a, such a strange. <laughs> thing but it's you know it's so lucky because it feels like why well you just started writing right uh writing or riding right yeah, oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, this is the first time i'd ridden a motorcycle outside of motorcycle school oh god that that's a terrifying moment i remember that moment it actually it wasn't too bad then i am a giant weenie i was terrified i was well, absolutely terrified well it's uh i'll tell you little group called mob deep <laughs> <laughs> had something to say about that subject and there's what, what, what was it kyle it's uh, that there's no such thing as halfway crooks ah uh, yeah that's mm -hmm. true yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, but no really like cb 500 f i mean if you're going to be writing if, 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 like this is going to be your first time writing something it's basically viceless like it's perfect like it, it's light it makes enough power it, yeah it doesn't sound cool it doesn't look great Sorry, but Honda. But that's that's the thing, though. They make they make good, usable, you know, just yeah, ordinary bikes. I can't bikes. understand why anybody says anything bad about right. about like Honda, like Honda motorcycles. They have a reputation for being kind of boring. Oh, because they're, they're not terrible people. A motorcycle is inherently an exciting thing. Yeah, any bike is interesting, and even the, the boring by the standards of what an R six. Yeah, a Ducati that'll rip your nipples off. I that's mean, true. It, it, everything's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the spectrum. Um, <laughs> Where, where where were we? Uh, so yeah, like I mean, getting getting back to the the meat of the interview, mm, um, real real Frost Nixon stuff. Uh, so you you started automobile, and then you kind of had this sort of like meandering, sometimes print, sometimes online, some, and to kind of how how did that deal? Well, oh, meandering can describe my entire life. Um, also, the way in which I, I go about picking sandwich uh, toppings. But um, so I, I I was there for a couple of years, mm -hmm. and uh, automobile at the time, was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is this little college town about 40 minutes outside of Detroit, known for being the kind of the liberal haven in, in you know, the lower, lower southeast Michigan quadrant. But uh, I was there for a couple of years and learned an awful lot from some of the smartest people I've ever met and uh, loved it. And in the end, just kind of wanted to make a change. I ended up moving out west. Uh, I got to know uh, a guy named Pete Stout, who currently runs... Yeah. Yeah. Runs um runs a magazine at the moment called Triple Zero. Which is amazing. It's barely a magazine. It's like it's, it's a it's an incredibly beautiful we had Larry Chen on and he was telling us about shooting the cover for it. And yeah. He and he used to do Panorama, the Porsche Club magazine, which under his uh direction was also excellent. Just great things. Yeah. Yeah, he's a really talented guy. Yeah, before he ran Pano, before he ended up at Pano, he ran a for about I wanna say about a decade. But Pete's an old school Bay Area guy and he ran out of Novato, I think. One of the it was Novato, one of the northern towns north of the um, in Marin, north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, he ran a single mark magazine called Excellence. It was focused entirely mm -hmm. on Porsche. Still and around? It's still around. Yeah, not that excellent though. Uh, it wavers. It comes and goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, the media business is, is a it's difficult tough. place. It's a tough one. But anyway, so he um, he ran that. I went to work for him for about a year, yes. and after that, ended up freelancing for. Uh, freelancing for a couple of years and kind of filtered into a you know you know how it works you just get to know people and mm -hmm. filtered into a bunch of other things wrote for esquire as their car guy for about seven years and did other things for them as well 
got in with the guys at Wired, uh, did stuff for the Times, just kind of all over. So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's it's like any other career. You uh, in in writing, the only the great thing is you have the luxury of chasing what's interesting. Sure, because that's basically the whole gig. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think speaking of Wired, I think the first thing that I I like was aware of that you that you had done, you did a video about the the mechatronic. Um, 280 SE with the E55 oh, AMG drivetrain in yeah. it. Yeah, I remember that. I was like, "Who's this guy? And why does he get to drive that? This is <laughs> who's this jackass? Yeah. And why do I want that car? This is unacceptable to that me." That was oh man. So they what did they do? That was German company, Dutch it's, company. Was, I don't remember. I think it was a German company. And if memory serves, there it was like everybody they, says the singer of, but it's I mean they're taking a full they're fully restoring a, a Mercedes Opera Coupe which is already one of the most beautiful cars to exist in the last hundred years. Yeah. And they then took the woefully underpowered, and I say this from experience, uh, a straight six engine out of it, and, and into it they shoehorned a supercharged Mercedes hand-built AMG V8, um, and it's, you know, all the rest of its gubbins, but it doesn't look like it at all. I mean, that was the thing. No, it was, God, the thing was so just, I mean, because I'm a, I'm a sucker, so that's a, I forget that's not a 108 109 but so what's the one, code for the com- 110 or a 111 cuz it shares bits right There's like 110 111 112 and 113 not a 113 I can never remember 113's the pagoda but the 110 111 is is the coupe convertible and I can never remember which is which and there's one that has air suspension and one that doesn't and <laughs> there's a high grill and a low grill I I yeah. grew up my grandmother bought a so oh got about about a 108 4.5 new mm-hmm. and it's still floating around the family so I grew I have this long dormant love for for 108s and 109s you know all the silly stuff that goes along with it grocers you know oh, the, yeah. the, every extension of that that baroque era mm-hmm. um but god the mechatronic thing it was that that motor like a real motor in one of those cars you know this is this is it's not the last of the bank vault mercedes but it's it's the last it's of the yeah and it's the last <laughs> of the well, this looks like it would belong in an opera house. Yes, let's put it on the car. Yeah. And that corner of the car isn't fancy enough. Let's fancy it up without, you know, but the, the interiors were still firmly stuck in the 60s. And oh, yeah. it was just this weird combination of old and new. And there were, you know, the, the, somehow that with just an absurd amount of power and nothing else done to it. I mean, yeah. I think it had a little more spring and bar and damper, but sure. it was, it was, it was perfect. What and it was. Need? I don't remember what the exact price was, but it was like a quarter million dollars. Oh, yeah, it was or I half a million dollars. Insane like yeah. that. But I was like, if I could, <laughs> would I? The answer, the answer is, yes. is yes. Of course. Of course it's yes. Yeah. It's always yes. Yeah. Who are, how are you going to drive? You could drive to literally anything and just be the coolest guy there. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, literally, like, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. You show up and you're like, uh, can I park this for you, sir? No, I think I'm going to leave it out front and then like watch this and you open the hood and it's, it's great. For those of you who don't know off the top of your head what, you know, what arcane esoterica we're talking about, this is basically the... No, no, these, these are nerds that we're, we're broadcasting. Oh, yeah, no, we, get a, we get a lot of comments. Oh, well, okay, the point is... James I was... gets a lot of fan mail. Really? Should oh. I write him fan mail? You should. Oh, yeah. saucy. Yeah. Um, Fanfic. Fan... Oh, wow. I, I picture him wearing cravats. I've never met him, but I picture him liking cravats and Fancy bow ties. He doesn't. He dresses like a tween. Mm. But disappointing. Yeah, we love say. him anyway. Does he like croquet? Yes. Does he? Does he enjoy and or live in palaces? I, I just there's a very bougie aspect. I to mean, his kind answer. of. He lives. He lives off. Uh, Sold. He lives in Los Angeles. He lives I'm in West writing, Hollywood. So I'm writing enough. fanfic. It's happening. Done. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. Yeah, the the opera coupe. Yeah, it's a mid mid to late sixties, early seventies. Uh, big. Two, it's it's. Basically, the car, the hangover car, the yeah. car that was in the hangover. Yeah, that's the convertible the version. Yeah, exactly, same thing. And and uh, the, the, an interesting thing that not that any of you uh, nerds, sorry, care is uh, the the price discrepancy between them. So, oh, completely. That's yeah, the crazy so thing. The, the coupe in a really nice V eight coupe, maybe a hundred grand. Like, well, that's a lot of money. Convertible, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for if, a V eight convertible. And if you want that same car in a sedan, just different exact same stuff yeah just kind of looks a little more boring nicest one in the world is probably like 15 grand 20 grand yeah yep uh hemming says that my condition four <laughs> or i'm sorry Haggerty says my condition four w108 coupe with six cylinder and column shift transmission 20 grand and that's going to be a tough sell <laughs> 
Because you got to have the guy who wants exactly that. Because it's yeah. also not like there aren't a million of them out there. Because at yeah. some point, they all run into the old Mercedes problem of, this car is amazing, and I paid three grand for it, and now it needs a steering box, and the steering box is $4,000. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, everything on it, it's, it's the problem. Yeah, my cylinder head went this year, uh, as our when? listeners know. Uh, yeah, well, here, the fun thing. About having a car. Fun, fun. fun. You can't see his face, but he winced when he said that. About having a car with an iron block and an aluminum cylinder head that was built in 1970 and then let sit for a long time is that dissimilar metals corrode. And when left to its own devices, antifreeze becomes acidic. (laughs) So my head melted from the inside out. And uh, seven grand later, it's still now we're back on the road. V8 swap. V8 swap. Never. V8 swap. I'm not a monster. Diesel? 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 Uh, diesel V8. Uh, I got nothing left. I'm no, no answers. It's uh, it's 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 MF. It's Bosch MFI. I mean, it's great. Which is legit. Okay, fine. It's it sounds like a sewing machine. It sounds kind of like a diesel, but it's it, it, you know I can hang out with my Porsche friends and their their long hoods and be like, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I got that same problem. <laughs> my buddy um, Zach Bowman, who uh, another one of my favorite writers. Uh, he's it, Zach is is. Every, every bit is as deranged as you think he is. Every bit is deranged as his writing makes him sound. Well, he agreed. He agreed to sit in a Morgan cross country with Alex Roy. Yeah, there's so, so many things wrong with that sentence. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if, he bought. If you guys haven't read it, go find. Go find it. Oh God, who, he did that for the drive a couple of years ago. They, yeah. they nonstop across the country, L.A. to New York, the reverse cannonball in a three wheeler in like November yeah. or December. Yeah. Solid I mean, plan, guys. Yeah, completely. Most of the country is dark and or cold and or miserable. But mm. but anyway, he just bought a, he was um, out in Seattle for a wedding a couple of months ago, or sorry, out in the Northwest for a wedding. And while he was there doing a, ended up doing a, a story on, I think the gambler and ended up buying a, the car that they brought to run in it was a, a javelin with giant mud tires on it, I think, and no hood and no interior, something like that. And they, he ended up buying, when that blew up, because Javelin with giant mud tires and no hood and no interior. Well, sure. Um, when that blew up, he ended up going on Craigslist outside of Portland, and in an hour and a half or something like that, found a $400 123, this was the small gas motor, so I guess that makes it a 220? Mm-hmm. So the four-cylinder, tiny, 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 that had like, I don't know, low six-figure mileage, high six-figure mileage, I don't remember. It's it's a, it's, a, it's, it's Irrelevant. Yeah. It was, you know, Mercedes old versus Mercedes new. Yeah. And he, he ended up buying the thing and hung out at our house for about four or five days, and we had to drive around it, and, and all the all the gummy hair out of the seats was gone, and, you know, it had crank windows and no air, and somebody optioned it just right. It was white over black, but I just drive it around the city, and, and it was an excellent trundler, and just mm-hmm. this reminder that you don't, in one of those cars, it's like a you know, it's like anything out of Detroit in the early sixties. You don't need a lot of power if you're just kind of being the guy with the arm in the window, being Mercedes dude. That's and exactly it's, right. So good at just trundle, 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 trundle. Yeah, no, no, the uh, the big baby, as I like to call her, <laughs> um, because it's as expensive as a human child and probably almost as rewarding, kinda. Uh, yeah, about forty miles, forty forty per down the uh, down Santa Monica Boulevard. Um, preferably west of Western, where it doesn't look like Beirut, <laughs> yeah. uh, as far as road quality is concerned. And uh, yeah, it just just everything smooths out, like it just kind of stops, yeah, stops making noise. Like it, the, the engine is just, it's just beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. But then you try to drive on the freeway, and the engine's screaming, like, please, <laughs> please let me die. My dad used to tell stories because the, the you know the, my grandmother, like I said, she bought this one hundred eight new. It was like a seventy seventy one. And my mom and dad has the weird distinction of having been through all kinds of weird events in our family. So my, like my mom and dad left their wedding in it. I left my wedding in it. Yada, yada, yada. My mom and dad dated in it. They used to go on vacations to you know, the north of Michigan when they lived in Kentucky in it. But I, he told me, I remember him telling me stories when I was little, right after they had built some of the interstate systems in the mm-hmm. Midwest. And he, I remember him saying, sitting in the back, he, would, he said he would sit in the back seat of it with my grandparents driving and all four windows down at like 85 or 90 miles an hour. And my grandfather would take his hands off the wheel, not steering with his knee, not like locking the car into a rut or anything, just take his hands off the wheel at 90 miles an hour and just sit there and the car wouldn't budge just for miles. Oh yeah. And because of all, you know, the whole thing, we're in old boxy four-door cars, you drop through windows and then the cabin gets quiet. There's no Mm -hmm. back and forth wind buzz. And just the stories he would tell about that thing just doing its autobahn magic trick you know oh yeah now that's normal that's just what cars do but this notion that these things were 
truly special at that point, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible. It's an incredible. There's a reason I keep like you know hemorrhaging my savings into it, <laughs> and you know keep like having to lift places because my car is <laughs> is uh, is being you know fiddled with by my wizened ancient German mechanic and. There are no young wizened German mechanics. Oh, that's God, that's he's so he's so old. <laughs> Ludwig, you don't know what a podcast is. Shout out to Ludwig Ellenim Motors. What's because, up, Ludwig? Yeah, no, he's he's the he's the crankiest German man. He started his shop uh, in I think the early sixties, late fifties, early sixties. It's in the same spot now. Really? Yeah, they started out as a DKW and Mercedes shop. What? Yeah, well, you know, DKW business sort of tapered off as you might uh, imagine well i mean yeah. of course yeah. yeah i mean sure but uh yeah you know he's still there and it's uh i mean he's got like people outside of los angeles might not get out outside of california might not get this but he's got like, the in-ground hydraulic lifts that are like super environmentally friendly <laughs> um that you're only like literally grandfathered because like you know it, it's, inc- just, it's an incredible just, place just a giant cylinder leaking all kinds of terrible super fun stuff into the ground it's true it's true but he does have like you know a spot for everything like it's the cleanest shop i'm still stuck on the dkw thing how right. how at any point in in american history was there ever enough DK, uh, uh, enough of a dkw population concentration man justify a shop it's i don't care if it's i don't care if it's the moon that's amazing <laughs> that's incredible yeah 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 Anyway, uh, but yeah, <laughs> you're like, and we're not going to talk about the very sick man ever again. <laughs> oh, oh, I live big. I'm sorry. Well, he's he's a he's a delight. I'm sure he's a charmer. Sure. Yeah. Boy, <laughs> just love just love giving him my money. So uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, back to uh, whatever it was we were talking about. Um, gibberish. J- yes, gibberish. Uh, so like, one one of the things that I think. And you hear this a lot, and not just about automotive writers, but writing in general is that if you want to be a successful writer, you have to read. Yeah. You, know, you got to read a lot. Constantly. Yeah. So who, who and or what do you like to read when you're not writing? Because, I mean, you have a very specific style. <laughs> um, Some people call it a style. Other people call it a disaster. You sure, know, let's well, let's yeah, be honest. You know, we're we're in we're in the charity game here. It's a sure. nonprofit. Yeah, okay. We'll say style. I like it when we call it finger quotes style. Air no. quotes style. Like what what do you read? Like what do you find that that really gets you excited to write about stuff? Or or what do you make feel makes you a better writer because you you read this this person or this publication or? Well, there's you know there's stuff that makes you there's stuff that you read it and, and you feel like it makes you a better writer and then there's stuff that that you read and you feel like it makes it, it makes you a more either introspective or considerate or em- empathetic human. Mm-hmm. And I tend to err towards the latter stuff, mainly because the former stuff, if, it, if, if there's something that you feel like it's making you a better writer and it, it, it's actually that different or that, that involved and, and, and that you're, you're thinking about how you write as you read it, it's probably a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, I, it, it might not be even be very good, um, yeah, well, but, I mean, well, because most people don't, you know, you don't, you don't tend to think about that when you're writing or when you're reading, right? Um, but I gravitate toward toward you know breadth and depth of human experience stuff. I'm currently on a uh, a John McPhee kick. He's one of the writers for longtime writer for the New Yorker, mm-hmm. uh, decades and decades, and has taught writing at I believe it's Princeton for decades and decades. But does really in-depth long like imagine the stories that end up in the new yorker where it's uh weak in an aircraft carrier or someone dives into the the philosophy and science behind the orange industry and somehow manages sure. to make that interesting okay over six thousand or ten thousand words that's mcphee mm-hmm. and it's everything from you know he he wrote a book on he wrote, managed to write a fascinating book on actually the citrus industry and how florida oranges grow and where they come from and the people that that make that that whole corner of the world run. Mm-hmm. But he also wrote a really amazing book called Assembling California on the geographic history of the state and okay. how, you know, from plate tectonics on back, how the state came to be physically assembled in the way it is. But the, everything, the, the guy's really interesting, especially given what I do for a living, in that everything for him, he'll start off with some incredibly, you know, not necessarily boring, but a subject that if you wrote it down and said, we're going to talk about oranges for six hours, people would roll their eyes and walk out of the room. Sure. But, unless it was a podcast, in which case, they <laughs> sign me up. Yeah. But he manages to make these these ostensibly very gray beige subjects 
deeply human and deeply, uh, I don't know, that just pulls on the threads of how and why people make decisions mm-hmm. and what happens when, you know, because people are, people are interesting to begin with, whether they're succeeding or failing. But f- by and large, most people make the most interesting decisions they make when things go wrong. Right. Sure. You know, nobody's ever more compelling than when they're having to deal with something that, you know, just hit the fan. And so much of McPhee's work is about the 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 stuff that makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been on a, a kick, uh, been on a McPhee kick for probably about 10 years. Okay. Um, you know, one of those things where I have three or four on my nightstand um, pretty much all the time. But I uh, got off the top of my head. Uh, I wish I could remember more. There's a lot more. But yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. Like, uh, I've been, I mean, I've always read a lot and I read a lot of automotive stuff, but, you know, it's easy to kind of get like into a loop, I guess, where you're using sort of a totally. feedback loop. It's just like uh, same thing over and over and over. And like, you know, well, this, this I'm going to read six people's take on whatever the new Range Rover or something like that. Um, so trying to, to branch out and read stuff that I, I haven't read before has been really interesting lately, especially since I've been like writing more. Um, I'm reading a lot of Joan Didion. Oh yeah. Lately, which is so completely different to in terms of like how she interviews people or approaches subjects, that kind of thing. Like it's really it's it's way too good. It's too it's Didion, too good for me. Dick Didion's amazing. I mean, all the stuff obviously that she wrote about, you know, New York and her divorce that everyone mm-hmm. knows is all fantastic. Oh yeah. Uh but she's she's one of those people that I can go back to and and you know, just read chunks of mm-hmm. years after I read the book. Yeah. Um I don't know. Didion Diddy, actually reminds me of Roger Ebert. Do you ever read any, read any of the stuff that wasn't film criticism? I have not. It's really interesting because he was another guy like McPhee that was fascinated with the human condition and mm-hmm. fascinated with what makes us who we are. Sure. And that just happened to come out in him writing about film and you know this town and the industry that surrounds it. And you know it's it's one more you know one more brick in the wall of it. Doesn't matter what you're writing about as long as you come back to you know the stuff that makes it human. But, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well. Transitioning from from that uh, line of nonsense, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no it was a, so obviously like uh, you do. I mean, you you write a lot of the sort of feature, really interesting, bizarre, crazy. Why would anybody do that stuff for Road and Track as of late? So uh, I, I just finished actually as of last night. Finished reading um, your piece on driving. Was it Colin Comer's own personal 1993 NASCAR? Yeah, uh, at, at Road oh, America. Oh God, that thing was a hoot! Oh, what a what, just an atomic sofa! What a trip! What is like? What is that? Getting that call? Like you're like, does somebody just call you up? Smith? <laughs> <laughs> Give me all the pictures you have on Spider Man, and I want them now. Exactly. Like how? Do, what? How does that whole process go? And like, how do you get yourself like warmed up for something like that? Because I mean, that that sounds crappy. Crappy bakes and 800 horsepower on a course like Road America sounds harrowing <laughs> well i mean ultimately so like that all the stories we do ended up coming from they basically fall into one of two buckets there's something we need to cover mm-hmm. you know a car an industry development something related to tech or you know where the world is going like automated automated driving and autonomy or something that we desperately find interesting and really just want to go figure out a way to talk about it and pull out what that says through that you know pull on the threads and pull out what that says about again, people and mm-hmm. the industry and why we like cars to begin with. Because ultimately the whole point of a magazine like Road and Track or a site like Jalopnik or Motor Trend or anywhere else, it's all just, I mean, it's entertainment, but it's also to you know help you realize and understand what's so cool about all this stuff and why we dig it. Sure. And so that was a, the stock car thing. For um, those of you who haven't seen it, is we took a mid-90s road course setup stock car because there are they're built in, several different configurations but chiefly it falls into oval tracks and places where they have to turn right and that happens these days twice a year i think there may be a third one it's just i think it's just sears point and watkins Glen. but uh, yeah. yeah but anyway so it's the the gist of it all was we've we've gotten to the point after probably 30 years of what you'd call quote-unquote modern nascar where there are a glut of these things in the market you mm-hmm. know, because every team turns out somewhere between you know a handful and a metric crap ton of cars every year, both because guys wreck them or because the cars age out or because you get hit one too many times and all of a sudden that, that chassis doesn't have the snap that it used to anymore sure. or because, you know, God knows what. The, the team needs money and they sell that frame and they buy another frame. Um, 
but anyway, so they're after a couple of decades of doing this, you know, basically since the advent of the modern silhouette NASCAR, NASCAR car, which was about 10, 20, about give or take 20, 30 years ago. Sure. Um, a couple of decades of doing this, and there are just a glut of these things on the market. And I mean, like, these are 3,500 pound, 600 horsepower, four speed automobiles with a lock differential and a roll cage around you that's designed to hit things at 150 miles an hour. And we'll do a buck 60 doing into going into braking for turn one at Road America. And you can buy them all day long for the price of a Honda Civic. You know, if you want a car that has... It's, it's a beautiful time that we live in. It's insanity. And again, it's, it's just simple supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. There just aren't that many people who want used NASCAR stockers. So, you know, if you if you want to, you can take them to track days because they're remarkably cheap to operate mm-hmm. once you get over the fact that they chew up a set of brake pads every event. Yeah, that was the thing that I found shocking in the article was talking about like, yeah, the best shocks in the world <laughs> for these cars, the best ones... Yeah, about 500 bucks a piece. Yeah, and if you want them plated in solid gold and covered in diamonds, they'll be 600, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, there is literally, the only place you can spend money on one of these things is making it pretty or putting more motor in it. And, yeah. like, chassis consumables, those last about, yeah, six seasons. Yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah, and it's nuts, right? Because the, anyway, long story short is we, there are guys that, the road course cars are actually a lot of fun. And because mm-hmm. the front end is basically 1960s Detroit. And the back end is a giant live axle, something like a Ford 9-inch, I think. Mm-hmm. with truck arms on it, you know, big radius arms. And everything on it is overbuilt to the point of insanity. Because sure. again, they're designed to hit things at a buck fifty and guys walk away. But it's a you know, the car has like inches and inches of tire side wall on it and it's softly sprung and it's softly damped and it has, you know, relatively tiny roll bars. So you roll the thing into a corner and it's moving and shaking and kind of doing this little you know hip thing underneath you. Mm-hmm. And it's in the end you you figure out a way to make it turn because it doesn't want to turn. You figure out a way to make it stop because it doesn't want to stop. But you can, I mean, you can show up, you know, you literally, you know, I could trade my daily driver in if I didn't want a car with history and didn't want a car that had won anything. Sure. I could trade my, you know, terrible, I have a $4,000 BMW Bavaria. I could trade that in and or sell that and get half the money I needed to go buy a pro-grade race car yeah. that you could go light your ass on fire with. I mean, it's, they, they're, so anyway, we, to make a very long story short, we, I found out about this through Colin, who has had a bunch of these things, and uh, talked to him and talked to our insurance guys, and just became briefly fascinated with the fact that you know these these cars work on a road course, and nobody knows it, nobody mm-hmm. cares, and everybody's focused on the fact that you know D types are a million dollars, and you know E30 M3s are getting up to be six figure cars, and if you want all the dream things from your youth, you know, priced out of it, if you have anything like a normal job, mm-hmm. but. If you want a 600 horsepower ball, a hairy, funky Jesus, you know, you can go buy it. Yeah. And it's, it, they're literally affordable for just about anybody. But. Yeah. It, 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 I was, yeah, just reading it and uh, made me want to go do it. <laughs> that's, that's the thing that, that I find it, specifically about your, your stuff and your writing is that there is an approachability to it. There's an element of, hey, I could go do that. Like in the way that you're, it's, you don't write about, it's, it's not, how do I want to put this? It's it's there, there's not this like you're not putting anything on a pedestal. You know, you're getting like you, you did the the admittedly somewhat strange um uh where you had like the D type and the F pace and the uh the 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 uh, uh, Batmobile or CSL Batmobile and the X5. Yeah, like, so like, so like that's a perfect example, yeah. right? So that on the surface that's a supremely weird comparison test. We got a jet. We basically took three. This is for. R&T's 70th anniversary issue. We took three classic race cars that, you know, from the eras that, you know, the magazine's golden era, the sports golden era, everything, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, and then took three SUVs from the same companies that, you know, were in no way connected to those vehicles. The thinking being that we're trying to chart how and where the industry has come in a different way. Because if you look at it, like take Porsche, for example, you know, they built an entire brand on the back of motorsport. And now... Everything that keeps the company afloat has nothing to do with sports cars. Same thing with BMW. Same thing with Jaguar. You know, mm-hmm. Jag had, you know, the, their their reputation in this country was built on Le Mans wins, built on the 120, on the C-type, on the D-type. And, you know, in the end, the cars they sell now have not not mechanically nothing in common, but almost philosophically nothing in common. Sure. And that's this notion that the industry is so different that, you know, now even motorsport it has nothing to do with building a brand. It's not profitable it doesn't work it's advertising it's not 
a way to get new eyeballs. You're basically talking to the same old group of people. Mm -hmm. And we got all of these things together to see if there was a, a common thread between the two. And, you know, like I said earlier, it was just me coming up with a silly idea and, and you know, pitching pitching my bosses on it. And they said, yes. That's Which nice. is, is absurd in yeah. the end when you think about it. But. Shout out, good job, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that it was really interesting. I mean, in particular, because the three vintage cars you picked happen to be three of my favorite Oh, I mean, of everybody's man. Yeah, and I think that that um, the 911 you drove. I want to say I saw Patrick Long hustle that thing around Laguna Seca a couple of years ago, and that was interesting because that guy is he's so <laughs> you know he's so buttoned down. He's he's such a skilled driver, but like I mean, he's just throwing armfuls at yeah. the steering wheel. It's like moving around and sliding, and like it looks like he's having the best time. So the car, the car was a. So we had the the CSL. There was a 72 3.0 CSL. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the first cars to, to actually the, the first CSL to apply to an NFIA race. Okay. Um, had a 54 D type that was just a regular ordinary D type. Sure. And then the 911 we picked. Run of the mill. Run of the garden mill. variety. Yeah, they fall off of trees. Yeah, I mean, right. I saw three on Sepulveda this morning. Yeah. But, and the, the 911 was a short wheelbase two liter S, which would make it a oh, 69, I believe. Short wheelbase would be 65, 66, 67, 68, I believe. No, 67, correct. Yeah. So, so 68 was when they went to a long wheelbase. My memory is terrible, and I should know these things. Anyway, it was a... There, uh, there are nerds out there currently, again, sorry. Shutting the podcast off. They're just, yeah. just wringing their hands, yep. like just so, so rending their garments. This, this jackass, right, yeah, no. <laughs> Mostly um, at me, I, I think. I know, at both of us, I hear that a lot. But anyway, it was... So it was a... It's a that particular car is... It's pretty much everything. It's the, the embodiment of the old 911 stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, a built two liter might make 200 horse. Sure. You know, they spin, they have really short strokes. They spin high, but they don't make a lot of torque. There's a reason Porsche made that motor larger and larger and larger and larger. Mm -hmm. This still has a two liter in it. And it was raced in period. It was bought by a guy who ran a dealership and then taken to Daytona. Won its class at Daytona in 67. Um, and it, the guy who owns it now is friends with Pat Long and, I know Pat through a couple of other people and just generally through road and track stuff mm -hmm. and called him up at one point. We were looking for a 911 and he said, I've got just the car. And it turns out that this thing is because it doesn't have a lot of tire on it and it's got a decent amount of a spring and bar and shock and, and it's, it's got a healthy motor in it, but it's not a fast car. But the thing about old short 911s is that they have this reputation for killing people, sure. right? You know, the whole thing where, oh, I went into a corner too fast, and then I lifted, and all of a sudden my kidney yeah, was in a tree. Breaking a straight line, right. please. Well, but the, the, it turns out that, you know, all of that stuff is is real. But it also turns out that the cars are, if you know, if you speak their language, if you figure out their set of rules, yeah. they're docile as, as, as puppy dogs, right? Well, you're not going 200 miles an hour. I mean, the yeah. And that's and that's the thing, right? You know, the car they slide a lot. I mean, I the video the video of Pat at Laguna mm -hmm. is fantastic because it's literally you see his elbows more than you see his oh, wrists. Yeah, he's just sawing just at back the wheel. Forth, back Incredible. Forth. But that's you know, I found that out. That's what you have to do because anything that upsets the car, the camber and toe curves in the rear suspension, and the you know the fact that the car carries all of its mass mm -hmm. way back behind you know ten feet behind the license plate, 30, 30 miles behind you, whatever the hell it is. All of that is just balled up momentum that you end up playing with. So you go into a corner and you want to tighten the line by six inches, eight inches, move the car a foot to the left, whatever it is. You know, in a normal car, you breathe off the throttle and some race cars get a little loose and happy and some street cars get a little loose and happy. Well, a 911 makes you pay for it just in that mm -hmm. you have to put in another like, you know, 90 degrees of corrective lock and your arms come all the way around and you you heal over in the seat and then you catch it again. Sure. So every... And that, you look awesome. And you look amazing. Yeah, that's the best part. And every corner is like that if you're at, if you're anywhere close to the limit of the tires because it just doesn't have a, it, does, it has a tiny window mm -hmm. for screw-ups. So in the end, it's like, I mean, imagine, God, I can't even, I mean, the analogy that, that I always use for old cars is old pickup in the snow. But imagine old pickup in the snow about two inches off the ground with no springs and um, uh, an anchor strung out on a on, – on, uh, no, no, a giant anvil on a, on a four by four hung out, you know, 30 feet behind the car. Sure. Everything has a price. Yeah. And when you figure out what it is, it's a riot. And then when you watch somebody – watch a pro like, like Pat in it. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's amazing because, you know, he's – I mean, he's back in the car down the cork through. He's going through rainy on like four and mm -hmm. five and six correctives just – Big old whoops of the steering wheel. I mean, it, it's it's great. Yeah, and you totally see why 
why the cars became what they are. Because when you when you catch a glimpse of the that weird little magic, it's, mm-hmm. it's mesmerizing. It's I think it's interesting that speaking about you know, obviously all the weight in the back is always everybody's criticism. Oh, the engine's in the wrong place. <laughs> like, I, I love that. I think it was. I want to say sixty-eight, maybe sixty-nine. That specifically on the 911S, Porsche put a weighted front bumper on the car. So you try to pull the bumper off of one of those cars, have a buddy, don't be underneath (laughs) it because it's like an 85 pound bumper. Right. Like they just, I think, I don't know if they put lead in it or what, but it's like, it's, it's incredible how much weight they, they like, it it didn't fix anything because they only did it for (laughs) one year. Well, it's also, and it's funny too, because, you know, like, because the cars have so much traction Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it, you just end up fixing it all the time with throttle, you know, and the mistake that all the guys made that put the cars in ditches was you come out of it, and you don't get back into it. Right? right. But if you get back into it, then the car stops sliding and all yeah. you have to do is just work just your arm squats down and yeah, figures it out. So it, it's, it's a hoot. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that whole day was just absurd. I just, I, I can't even put into words how weird that day was and those yeah. three cars and all of it. The, That's yeah. I, I could imagine that wouldn't be uh kind of, one for the memory banks for, for later. It's all of this stuff. It's a privilege. And and to get back to your earlier point, I mean, I, I all, all you ever want to do with something like that is put people in the car and, and tell them why it's important and why, mm-hmm. you know, with something like that where it's important to me, it's pretty easy. But it just comes down to try, you know, I, I genuinely wish some of the stuff I get to do, I, I genuinely wish literally everyone I knew, I know, was in the car with me because there's just... There's no way to share it outside, share that kind of magic outside of that, short of writing about it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, in the end, it's a privilege to be able to get kind of sh- get to share that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, I think, I speak for the collective uh, automotive sort of enthusiast group. We say that uh, we're glad that you do. Well, thanks. Hey, well, you're you're welcome. <laughs> right? Politeness. Oh my goodness. What is this manners? I know. Well, welcome to the museum, buddy. Hey. Uh, anyway, well. Uh, if people wanted to find uh, you and your excellent work on the internet and or social media, where would they uh, go to do that? Um, obviously on roadandtrack.com. Uh, do everything from small posts to larger car reviews and sometimes big goofy experiments there. Uh, I'm in the magazine every month with a column and a feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be one or two, one maybe one month a year where I'm taking vacation or something, but by and large, that's a pretty reliable place to find me. And um, Twitter and Instagram, at uh, ThatSamSmith, because, yes, it's that one, not the one who sings, not the other guy who makes the beer, not, you know, the thousand other things that come up when sure. you Google my name. But. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't realize that there was an, another singing Sam Smith, and then, and then I, I Wait, kinda... there, are there two? Well, no, so there's the, there's the one guy, right? So I was, I was like... <laughs> well, no, I was... I was and my I was, Google ranking was, drops even further. At, I do a questionable amount of research on our guests. <laughs> So I, th- I, you know, I threw Sam Smith into the Google to see what happens. Thirty and, pages back, when you find a fuzzy-headed Jewish kid. Well, there you go. And but the so the singer came up, and I was like, "Why does that guy look familiar?" <laughs> oh, I know. It's because he was supposed to play the Art and Film Gala at LACMA. I think last year, the year before. And really flaked. So oh, bad for the name <sighs> guy. Come yeah. on. <laughs> if you Sam's... see him in the street, you got to let him know. Yeah, Sam's everywhere. Just deeply disappointed in that. Unacceptable. Dude. Unacceptable. Yeah, I went on a, a, a ill-advised bender of finding people that have my name uh, on social media. Why would you do that? Yeah, except that I I found one. This this is one. He's a he's a young man. I think he's maybe eighteen or nineteen. He lives in Baltimore, <laughs> and he's always getting up to mischief. Obviously, he's great. Shout out Jamaican Trap Lord on uh, Instagram. Hi, Jamaican Trap Lord. Yeah, Kyle Hyatt. He's he's really do I'm I feel like I'm letting the name down at this point and and this other <laughs> Kyle Hyatt in Baltimore is living his best life and crushing it at every opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously so. that's the first thing I thought when when we met was this guy is not crushing it, Mm-mm. not living his best life. Obviously not in Baltimore. That's right, phoning it in one hundred percent. Way to go, Kyle. Yeah, uh, but yeah, well that's awesome. People should should definitely check you out uh, and uh, you're, you know, you post some weird stuff on social media sometimes. <laughs> your unreliable motorcycle and your unreliable cars and unreliable dogs, unreliable kids. You know, all, uh, all all the best. Whole thing. Uh, yeah, uh, and if uh, you guys want to find me on uh, the internet, it's pretty easy. It's Kyle J Hyatt on Instagram. Wow. Yeah, that's that's complicated. Yeah, it's spelled like the hotel. So, <laughs> you know, got that going for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you want to uh, get a hold of me, it's super duper easy. You can just email me. It's info at kylehyatt.com. If you have questions about the show or suggestions 
or spelling and grammar corrections, um, general fact checking. Uh, if you want me to make up a fact, pretty good at that. Um, but yeah, check that out. And then uh, if you want to find the Peterson, um, I mean, I assume you have already, which is a running weekly gag, but uh, it's it's Peterson Museum uh, on Instagram, Peterson Museum on Facebook, Peterson underscore museum on Twitter, and that's Peterson.org on the World Wide Web. And that's Peterson with three E's. If you put two E's, I don't know, an O, uh, any other type of, you're going to have a bad time. Don't gonna, do it. You're going to end up in Baltimore with Kyle who's crushing it. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you hope. <laughs> we all hope. Uh, anyway, well, thank you again, Sam, for taking some time and jumping on a plane and uh, coming to visit us. We appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys for stopping by for another Car Stories. Um, James will presumably be back next time, but who can say? He's slacker. Yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, check us out next Tuesday. Our guest will be uh, a completely different human. No idea. No idea who it is. Not any. It could be anyone. So uh, thanks again, guys. Bye.